Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so excited today to have as my guest Professor Julia D. Mahoney, who is the John S. Battle Professor of Law and the Joseph C. Carter Jr. Research Professor of Law at the University of Virginia, where she teaches courses in property, constitutional law, and a lot of other things. She went to Barnard undergraduate. She's a, Yale, a graduate of Yale Law School. Uh, she worked for Wachtell Lipton for a while, and she has too many articles to name and to count. But her most recent publications include, among other things, Federal Courts and Takings Litigation and a Feminist Common Good Constitutionalism. Thank you so much for being on here. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you. Let's, let's begin where I think we should begin, which is at the beginning. You write a lot about the intersection of con law, property, and obviously takings, if you're going to do that kind of thing. How did that interest develop and what made you stake out that territory? Developed when I first arrived at law school. I was an American history major and with a focus on the founding era and the early national period. And I knew how important property rights were to the founding generation. When I arrived at law school, I saw that property rights were a neglected right. They were not often counted among the key constitutional rights. And in some aspects, for example, uh, the power of the government to condemn property and take it through eminent domain power, uh, property rights really were um, just not enforced, at least by the judiciary. Property rights were to be protected, if at all, through the political branches. That was the claim anyway. This seemed to me to be uh, quite mysterious. Uh, there was something of a regulatory takings doctrine, but that was incredibly muddled for a variety of reasons. I thought that the uh, neglect of property rights had helped, frankly, lead to the muddle. Uh, compounding my bafflement was the fact that in 1954, I discovered the year the Supreme Court had decided Brown v. Board of Education, it also decided a case called Berman v. Parker. Berman v. Parker, in effect, paved the way for the massive exercises of eminent domain power that brought about urban renewal that displaced hundreds of thousands of people, most of them minorities. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I knew that the human cost of the, the, that massive displacement in the District of Columbia that the Supreme Court unanimously had, frankly, rubber stamped back in 1954. I knew the human cost had been considerable. How could the same group of people who had decided Brown v. Board of Education then be so completely oblivious, because the opinion by the court, by William O. Douglas, is, uh, does not acknowledge at all the human toll, how could they be so completely oblivious to what happened with eminent domain? And that sparked an interest. Then I went on to uh, practice law, as you point out, and eventually I found my way back to the academy. And these issues of property having become a disfavored right stayed with me. Even when I was in law school, there was some pushback, of course, against this attitude toward property rights. Excuse me, especially at Yale. Go ahead. <laughs> Yale, right. Yeah, absolutely. There was some pushback, but I thought the pushback was incomplete. Uh, nothing against the libertarian perspective on property rights. It's important. It's fascinating. A lot of it is true, but it is incomplete. Property rights at the, during the founding era were not just a matter, it wasn't just a matter of individual autonomy and so on. It was a, very much a matter of participating in society. So, so oh, okay. from that, I have gotten, uh, gotten a long way and, and continue. Uh, this court, of course, has, has changed direction. But I would say that the, and, and, and this is correct, uh, that it's more an evolution, not a revolution when it comes to property rights and the Constitution. 
I, I tease a lot of my friends who graduated from Yale because I believe, and I could be wrong about this, but I think Yale is the only law school in the United States that does not require property as a first-year course. <laughs> I think there are more now, okay. actually. Okay. But you're right. When I was in law school, I think Yale was <laughs> close to unique. I always thought property, that was... I thought that was very um, uh, symbolic in, in some ways. And by the way, I just I just finished a conversation downstairs with another law professor, and we were talking about how Yale has zero conservative public law professors, and haven't ha and has and hasn't really tried to get any in a long time. Um, so I, I find that interesting. Um, can we go back to the first thing you said? You were talking about the founding, and you were talking about how they thought about property rights and all of that. I used to give a hypothetical to my students, and uh, I, I want to ask you about it. And if you think, I think we draw a different, I think we agree on the hypothetical, but draw different conclusions from it. So I, I always identify as pro-choice all the way down, always have been since I was 13 and 1971. And my mother was having uh, women's consciousness raising meetings and I was listening in and they were talking about women dying in back alleys from abortion. So I, I've always been pro-choice. I've always thought Roe was wrong. Um, so I say to my students who are very pro-choice and think Roe and, and, and Casey were correct, I say I have a I have a basement, and if I live in if I live in a town where I can't rent my basement, they're telling me I can't make money that maybe I need to make if I have a small house and a decent basement. And let's say I'm 63 years old. I'm not having any more children. My wife is we're both well past fertility. To me, it's more important to rent my basement than to have my wife have the choice whether to terminate a pregnancy or not. My because she's not going to get pregnant again. My point being, there's no objective scale to decide. Which is more important, my ability to use my basement for rent or if I'm a woman to terminate my pregnancy. But if anything, if text and history mean anything, the property right is obviously more ensconced in our constitutional structure than the right to terminate a pregnancy. What do you make of all that? Well, not necessarily. Okay. It gets very complicated, okay. right? Because uh, property rights are not unlimited. Right. There are reasons to limit your ability to rent out your basement. Uh, and perhaps they will pass constitutional muster, perhaps they will not. The, in terms of reproductive rights, uh, things have changed considerably since the founding era in terms of our understanding of human development, in terms of our ability to help people who, have, uh, who are encountering very troubled pregnancies and so forth. And all this gets at a, a big issue that I expect we'll have a lot to say about, which is the level of generality? Yes. Uh, that we yes. Look at that we look at when we discuss when when we think about how uh, the founding era and all other eras, frankly, of American um, of American constitutional interpretation and construction, can be useful and illuminating as we build what we expect is a better future, as we fulfill, we hope, the promise of the Declaration and the preamble. Where I think we would probably eventually disagree is I, what I take from the. There's no objective way to distinguish renting my basement and terminating a pregnancy. Is judges should stay out of all of it, <laughs> but we won't agree on that. So you would okay. leave it to, but you would leave things to legislators. There are things I'm, that I'm get out there. Yeah, I'm a great deferential, but I want to get sidetracked on that. Let's talk about your work. We'll, right. Maybe at the end we'll get back to that. Um, so I, 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 I will confess something terrible. I don't teach takings. I never have because here at Georgia State, it's in the property course, and and there's too much because they get some of it in property. I don't have time in con law to do anywhere near, you know, what I want to do. Uh, I have two questions about that, I think. My first question about takings, which is really, I'm, it's really an ignorant question. I don't know the answer. Uh, the, a lot of liberals I know claimed that regulatory takings are not originally justified. In other words, the, the original meaning of the takings clause applies to physical invasions of property, 
not non-physical regulations of property. I have no idea if that's a good critique or not. And my second question is, should we be teaching takings in property, in con law, or both? I think you can teach it in either. Uh, I, I think it is important that students get some exposure. They don't necessarily need to get it, though, in the first year. Mm -hmm. It's great. There's a lot in the con law curriculum, a lot in the property law curriculum. I teach both. I think it's a perfectly reasonable decision of any professor not to cover it in either course. But at some point, it is a good thing for students to have some exposure. The phrase regulatory takings is quite confusing because it suggests that it's non-physical takings. But a lot of cases that are described as regulatory takings cases involve physical invasions or something that is very close to a physical invasion. You might say, or it's almost a physical invasion, or that it's, here's where things do get muddy, a, the functional equivalent, however you might want to, want to find those terms, of a physical invasion. The government may have regulated your basement apartment <laughs> so heavily that you will say, this is the functional equivalent of their saying, I can't rent it out. It is as if the Bureau of the ATF has moved into my basement. It is that bad. Um, you might claim the regulation is so intense. Uh, so uh, then the so back to the generality question. Uh, it, it certainly is not the fact that the Constitution is set up so that if a clever government pours over the text and figures out something, ah, we'll do a functional equivalent. But it won't actually be what the Constitution's text forbids. We shrug and say, no, 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 that's not how it works. This is not some tax regulation where if you figure out some really clever offshore entity and do blah, 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 that sometimes you get away with not paying taxes. No, Constitution does not work that way at all. But we see functional equivalents. We see some kind of action on the constitutional level, whether interpretation or construction. It is, and this may, again, I'm out of my wheelhouse here by, by, by several deviations, but is a taking that reduces your property's value substantially, but allows you almost an infinite number of other uses. Is, is, that, is that something that, is that what you're talking about? This is unclear right now. I mean, so many actions of the government and so many omissions of the government have massive effects on property values. Where is the line? And the Supreme Court has articulated a number of factors as being especially important, although those factors themselves are, are often unclear. And we have um, a lot of fascinating precedents from the lower courts that attempt to give content to those factors. So right now, I would say the regulatory takings doctrine is something of a mess. I think that it, it only glancingly engages with what I see as some of the most important principles of American constitutional law. Going back to the founding, and my approach of being informed by what is going on at the founding. When we think about property rights, we see two profound anxieties that the founding generation articulated. The first was redistribution of property, the paradigmatic taking of A, taking from private party A to give to private party B. Uh, it is one of the um, impetuses for the Constitutional Convention of 1787, was the fact that state legislatures were passing a number of debt relief statutes, passing there was a lot of issuance of paper money and so on and so forth. And so many members of the founding generation concluded that property rights were looking a bit shaky uh, because of these redistribution efforts. Another thing that the founding generation was obsessed with when it came to property rights was corruption, which they defined broadly. Monopolies, special privileges, 
ways for elites to enrich themselves at the expense of hardworking, responsible people who just wanted to be good, independent citizens. That language was all over in the run-up to the revolution. And I think it's always important to remember that members of the founding generation who explained the dangers of corruption, of special privileges, and so on, they meant it. They thought that the British Empire was, in effect, taking away their liberties, their, and, the, and that eventually they could lose everything. And they congratulated themselves on having the foresight to revolt before that could happen. So fast forward to the present day, an obvious rejoinder to me as well. How are you going to take those two key ideas? First, concern about redistribution, or at least redistribution under a kind of um, impulsive and fevered um, you know, kind of ideology, and concerns about the sorts of corruption that can erode property rights and all the liberties that go with stable property rights. How are you going to take those key ideas and get them into constitutional doctrine in 2023? And my response is, fair point. It's a difficult project, but I think that it's an important one and one worth doing. So um, about 12 years ago, my career took a turn, and I now often talk to informed non-lawyers and informed non-law professors. And I really enjoy that because it helps me shape my perspective. And I know what an, infirm, what an, what an informed non-law professor would say to you about what you just said, or at least one of the things they would say. They would say, I know this is going to sound crazy in our, in our current moment of time, but they would say, why in the world would we glean important principles about property and try to apply them to today from a generation of people or generations of people who believe people were property and kept people as property and, and wait, let, me, let me finish and slavery and 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 once once one is an elite back then and is you know 15 years old or whatever the age was and one now thinks oh i get to have human beings as property as slaves um why wouldn't that infect almost everything they thought why, why, why shouldn't we discount what they thought about property since they thought human beings were property? Well, you can throw out all of human history and you can say, I have nothing to learn from anyone. Well, I'm not. Uh, no, I'm not, no, no, I'm not. I'm, uh, well, let me give you a counterexample. Separation of powers. I think that, that, that Montesquieu and some of law, I mean, I think there, were, there was a rich theory of separation of powers that the founders had that I think is not affected by the bizarre notions they had about slaves and, and women. Not all issues, but on the issues where, I mean, property, I mean, to them, slavery was the most important of all the property issues, at least to the South. Completely wrong. Okay. Tell property me why. was a matter of positive law, not natural law. One reason that I've been so heartened and so interested in, among other things, Adrian Vermeule's Common Good Constitution. And we're going to get back in a minute, I promise. <laughs> and, related, and related projects is that it does uh, at least uh, refer to the classical legal tradition, which encompasses natural law. Natural law does not exhaust, of course, the classical legal tradition. There's also a lot of positive law in the classical legal tradition. Many involved in the founding of this nation abhorred slavery. Many others thought slavery was bad and was on its way out. There were certainly, of course, people involved who were more enthusiastic about slavery. But never forget just how strong this current of abolitionism that was sweeping the Western world seemed. So back to slavery being a matter of positive law. This could not be more important, I think, when understanding founding era attitudes 
towards slavery. There was no room for slavery in natural law. Slavery, in effect, contradicts natural law, or at least is in grave tension with natural law, because people are born free. Again and again and again, when you read cases involving slavery from the English cases or cases from colonial courts or cases from American courts after independence, you will see statements that slavery is only a matter of positive law and thus must be construed extremely strictly. You will note that in the Constitution, you don't see the word slave, you don't see the word slavery, and there is a very important idea that there can be no property in man. Now, does that mean that those who argue that the Constitution was a rotten compromise are wrong? No, it was a compromise, and you might say it's a very rotten compromise indeed. But it's not enthusiastic about slavery, and it gives room for there to be an end to slavery, which many envisioned at the time. Remember that the Constitution of Vermont didn't recognize slavery. Pennsylvania and Massachusetts are contemplating gradual emancipation statutes, which they end up passing in the early national era, I guess 1780 in Massachusetts, uh, Pennsylvania, maybe a little bit earlier. Don't idealize these laws. Their gradual emancipation means gradual emancipation. All the things end up moving a little faster in Massachusetts and seven, starting in 1783 because of court decisions. But there are not enthusiastic defenders of slavery at the time of the founding. The vigorous defenses of slavery as a positive good tend to come later. So it's understandable looking at the founding generation why so many in Virginia thought slavery was on its way out. Bear in mind how George Washington spent a lot of the final years of his life at Mount Vernon figuring out how to emancipate his slaves. And it was complicated because his slaves had intermarried with the Custis estate slaves. So so this is, I think, crucial. When you look at our founding generation, this is complicated, but they were not gung-ho for slavery. In fact, they saw themselves as modern and progressive, and they were. When you look at how slavery has been so common throughout human history, they were part of a movement, a very fast movement, by the way, for ending slavery. Did it happen as quickly as many envisioned? Absolutely not. Did it take a bloody civil war that I think they would have not been able to bear to contemplate? Absolutely. But nevertheless, this idea that they were somehow uh, that to them, the best, the most important property was slaves. Absolutely not. Well, I, I think we disagree a little bit on this. Um, I just read yes, two days ago that the only two founding, defined broadly, founding fathers who, got, who, who actually let their slaves go was George Washington, after death, was George Washington, and there was one other one. John, I forget who it was. There was one other one. But the rest of yes, them, and- yeah, the rest of them kept their slaves past the declaration, and- past the revolution, you know. So, well, hold, let me finish. Let me, I gave, I, let me finish. They they kept their slaves. Now the reason I mentioned not that, I all. To, I'm sorry. Not all owned slaves, right? No, not but those who well, slaves. many did. Very important. Only two released them. <laughs> and and that doesn't mean that they thought they were doing a good thing. There are plenty of things that people participate in in their own time that they think are wrong. Well, but also what are they, you they prohibited any any change to this to the slave traffic for what into, into twenty years, or however long that was. For 20 years, yeah. that is a, that another compromise. And they understood perfectly well that, uh, that, the, that, sla- that individual states were abolishing the slave trade, and they were. And they thought, many thought, 
it turned out rightly that the uh, transatlantic slave trade, not the domestic slave trade, very important distinction, would be in effect history by 1808 or so. So that was right. Look, I think people are morally complicated creatures. And the fact people are doing things, participating in things, doesn't mean they think they are necessarily right. There is no one, I think, who is at all reflective who isn't capable of feeling guilt and shame and not right. thinking that wasn't this the point I, means- I agree. That wasn't the point I was trying to make. I didn't make it well. The, the point I was trying to make, which is a big point about constitutional law, is, the, is this. And, and maybe this is not a fair reflection on what you were saying, but I fight people like Will Bode and Steve Sachs and, and Larry, your colleague, Larry Solemn, and other people all the time. Um, I wrote a piece called Originalism Off the Ground because they wrote a piece, or Larry wrote a piece, original, someone wrote a piece on the ground. My point is you're pointing to laws and, 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 and things. You're pointing to a lot of history and text. I want to know what the people did. And what they did was keep their slaves. And I think that, so I'm not, I'm not saying that not, that wasn't a difficult issue for them. I'm not saying it's not complicated. What I am saying is to figure out really what was happening with slavery in, in 1800 or 1787. You don't just look at what they said, you look at what they did. And Larry has a, who's, who's one of the most famous current originalists, you know, doesn't want to look at what people do. He wants to what people say. I don't believe that. I believe it's what people do that matters. Well, no quarrel there. It's important, I think, to look at both. But I also think it's important to think of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as aspirational documents that give us, in effect, a roadmap to a better world. You think you might think they do, you might think they don't. I think they do. If I tell you that they do, and then you tell me that these were very, very imperfect people drafting it, who were in a lot of ways hypocritical, yeah, no kidding, they're people. That's funny. I mean, I, this is this is this is going to go on a tangent here, but I've been criticized by folks on the right for the last 13 years because in my book, Supreme Myths, I talk about the, the there's, there's two different parts of the Constitution. Jamal Green has made this point, too. There are two different parts of the Constitution. The president has to be 35. There has to be two senators from every state. Inauguration Day was March 1st or whatever. Now it's January 20th. And, and that's constitutional law. And that's easy. And maybe someday there'll be a hard case about whether someone's 35 or not, but we generally know what it means. And we know what it means. Then there's the, what I call, aspirational constitution. You use the word aspiration. You're the first, I don't know, if, I don't know how you, how you self-identify, but assuming you're- As an originalist. As an originalist. Okay. You're the first originalist- or aspiring cons- people. You're the first originalist or conservative I found who agrees with me that, that the open-ended, imprecise litig- litigation phrases of the Constitution. We don't litigate the president being 35. We do litigate to process equal protection, free speech, establishment, free exercise, unreasonable and all that. Why did we, this, this is the tangent we're going to go on here. Why in the world would anybody think it's a good idea to give unelected life tenured judges final authority over the aspirational parts of our Constitution, which are not law? They're aspirations. They're not law. There's, there's something different. So, so if you think they're aspirations, why don't you agree with me that judges should stay out of most of that absent what, ha- what Hamilton called an irreconcilable variance? If there's a re- an irreconcilable variance between something and one of those aspirations, okay, strike it down. But that's like three cases in history. So why do you want judges to do a lot if you think they're aspirations, especially unelected life tenure judges? Compared to what? And I would say judges don't have the final say, nor should they. 
Oh, we uh, agree on that. After okay. all, after all, the Constitution can be amended, and it has been amended, and perhaps it should be amended more often. Perhaps it should be amended pursuant to the Constitution option, Constitutional Convention option, which has never been tried. I know that frightens a lot of people, but it's there in the document. I think it's definitely something that we should keep in mind. If the Constitution is not updated, not suited to purpose right now, amend it. And the just and and I also think, look, the justices are constrained in a number of ways in terms of how the Constitution is amended and constructed. It is no slur on any justice to say that the current tenor of the times provides some constraints. It does. And well, we all know that. It is, is it true that the court follows the election returns only up to a point? And I think the fact the Supreme Court remains one of the most respected institutions shows that there is a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court. Again, compared to what? You want Congress to have the final word? Compare Congress's ratings with the Supreme Court's ratings. They do much less. State legislatures, but we know that state legislatures are vulnerable to a number of things, as is Congress, vulnerable to, among other things, the corruption that so worried the founding generation. You don't think Justice Thomas is subject to corruption, huh? Different conversation. Absolutely not. And I will defend the justices of the Supreme Court. I will. I was so happy to see your review of this new book, The Court at War, which I'm going to get and read, because I am happy that it is getting more into the public consciousness that what we are facing with the Supreme Court justices is actually very, very, very small compared to some other stuff that we've seen. Of course, there are going to be some bad parts of Supreme Court history, but no, I do not think Justice Thomas is corrupt. I do not think Justice Breyer was corrupt when he was taking all those various, um, all of the justices who take various trips, who go and do various lectureships and so on and so forth. I will defend every Supreme Court justice, so far as I know, in my lifetime, There has not been a single instance of anyone ruling differently or I think even reasoning differently because of some favor gotten or some favor expected or some favor hoped for. And to me, that is absolutely essential that we keep this in mind. Boy, there's a lot in that answer that I would love to ask you about. Um, I want to get to common good constitutionalism, but I guess I do want to ask you this. Um, So people who know my work know that Um, I was the only liberal in the United States who openly in five different publications called for Justice Kagan to accuse in the first Affordable Care Act case. And there's no doubt in my mind she had to accuse because her deputy, Neil Cattell, argued the case in the lower courts. Now, she says, but I told him not to talk to me about it. And I believe her. I, I love Justice Kagan. I think she's a great justice. But that doesn't matter. He was her deputy. He, he responded to her. He was not going to try the cases or argue the cases in ways that he thought would make her upset. And you can't be a judge when you were a lawyer on the case below. Don't you think that's a situation where she should have recused? And, and her not recusing actually ended up being the deciding factor. Because without her, it's a 4-4 tie. The Florida, the Florida case gets upheld and the Affordable Care Act is gone. So now yeah. I, I have other reasons that we can go into for why you made but I, on the surface, she had to recuse, and she didn't. No, you, you I don't. You agree? No. I think Justice Alito's points are very important in yeah. the statement that he just released when he was explaining why he was not recusing and the fact that the relationships are so strong. Supreme Court is embedded in a network of relationships, former clerks, former employees, etc., etc., brothers-in-law, etc., etc. 
Are there points at which a justice has to look into her own heart and say, I can't be objective because I so want Neil to do well that I'm going to put a thumb on the scale? If Justice Kagan looked into her heart and thought that she could not be objective, I think she would have recused. I have great confidence in her. I have great confidence actually in all the justices to do exactly that. I think they are highly admirable people. I think we are very lucky in the people we have sitting on the Supreme Court now. I am very serious when I say, I think the federal judiciary is a real cynosure of oh, our okay. society. Well, are they perfect? No, but you and I, uh, and, and so no, I mean, the fact is they have duties. They have duties to work and there are big downsides to having a court that is short staffed. Um, and so yes, they should go forward. And uh, do I wish that justices in an ideal world, if justices took free advice from me, would they be a little bit more vigilant about avoiding any kind of appearance of impropriety? Yes, that's true, frankly, of all of our public officials these days. But I don't think Justice Kagan was wrong not to recuse. Well, we can vote out other public officials, but that, that, that but, <laughs> but but this tangent, this tangent um, makes me ask you one big, big, big question, and then we'll get to common good constitutionalism. So I don't understand your point you just made. Um, when I, again, when I talk to informed and smart non-lawyers, including historians and economists and people like that, I say at the beginning of my talk and the end of my talk, there's a golden rule that every democracy in history, free country in history has followed, except maybe Iceland. I, Iceland may be an exception to this, but every rule has exceptions. And that rule is this, never, ever, under any circumstances, give practical final power, and the court has practical final power. To get a constitutional amendment to overturn a Supreme Court decision has only happened you know, a few times. It's not going to happen in our lifetime again. And so it's basically final, final say. A job for life. That's absurd. No democracy does that. Here's, here's a lot of power for life. And unless you commit a crime, a felony or misdemeanor, you oh. get to stay in this court for life. Yeah. You, you, I mean, you, the way you're glorifying them and the institution... Well, I, I've been going around the country, just so you know, saying things like liberals and people on the left are getting it all wrong. The problem is not the justices. That isn't the problem. We've had worse justices than these many, many times in American history, although I think Justice Thomas is one of the worst. But leave that aside. The problem is the institution, because think about it from a 2023 perspective. I have an idea. Let's give government officials unbelievable power for life. No, no one does that. So, so, so I'm, I, I'm, are you defending the institution or are you defending the people? I am defending both. Defending you say no one does that. Go for it. I say we are the United States of America. We are exceptional. We decided to be exceptional. We were conscious at the founding era that we were doing stuff that had never been done before. And we've continued to do stuff that has never been done before. Now, there's a lot of path dependence, a lot of accidents of history, I think, uh, to explain why the Supreme Court has become so powerful and has such a large role in our system. It's possible that one might want to trim it back a little bit, but on the other hand, it does seem to be working decently well. So decently well that the court, as I mentioned, seems to be enjoying, so far as we can measure these things, uh, the highest public acclaim. I am a believer, since I am a conservative with a small c, I believe in conserving what works. And this seems to be working relatively well. Uh, I also it, believe it, when you I'm say, a realist. When, when you who, say it's working very well, let's go through it. 1801. They're so pissed off at the court, they cancel the court and say, go home. And, you can't, and, you, can't meet for, and you can't meet for a year. 1857, Dred Scott comes around and pretty much destroys our country. Uh, Starting around, let, let, let me finish, then you can respond. 
Starting in the 1880s, the court reverses the meaning of the Reconstruction Amendments and starts protecting railroads and businesses instead of newly freed enslaved people. From now, I know you agree. We'll get back to the Lochner era later, maybe. From 1900 to 1935, they strike down all kinds of laws about minimum wages and overtime rules and labor conditions. So the President of the United States has to go on the biggest media of the time and say, we've got to save the Constitution from the court. We then get to the Warren Court. And I know you have a lot of problems with that, as do many, many people. And, and then we get to Bush versus Gore, which changed world history, theoretically, because there's no war in Iraq without President Bush, because Gore doesn't go into Iraq. He goes to Afghanistan, but not Iraq. No, nah, he goes no, to Afghanistan. We have no idea. Not, not Iraq. Um, and now we have what I think is a, a you say, you keep saying the public likes the Supreme Court. Well, I'm not sure how much we, I'm not sure how much I care about that, but the, it keeps dropping and it keeps dropping because of guns and abortion. And we know this. We know the we know the American public is not with the Supreme Court on guns and abortion. So when you say it works relatively well, I look at that history and I say, no, it's been an absolute disaster for for you know whether you're progressive or conservative, it's been a disaster. You are living in what many would call the freest, most successful society in the history of the world, or at least close to it. I wouldn't. We can quibble. You, okay, we fine. can quibble. And so on. Is there any place? Where would you rather live? Well, Why don't we start with this? Well, are well, you moving? I, to, are you trying to move to Iceland? Are you trying to build a raft <laughs> to go to Cuba? I'm genuinely curious. Here, I'm definitely not willing to go to Iceland or Cuba. But are you sneaking over the Canadian border? I am to, a Canadian. You, I, was, I was born in Canada. I'm born. I'm a dual citizen. You're dual, excellent. Um, okay, but you're not returning to Canada. I may soon. But depends what happens. There's the next a reason. Election. Wait. And yet you are staying here. Wait. Wait. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. When, so I, I don't want to go through the whole newsroom speech, the show, the newsroom. But no, we are by, uh -huh. we are, we have we are not in any way, shape, or form the most exceptional country on earth. We lag behind on every indicator: education, middle class, uh, healthcare, everything. We we are the only free country in the world without a national maternity maternity leave program in the whole world. We're the only only country. You're not lagging behind on everything. We have problems to fix, but you and I have a different, I think, philosophy in that I am very much a kind of build on what's strong and fix what's wrong approach. And there's a lot of strong stuff to be built on. And you seem to me to be more of the approach of you see things that, that you think are not optimal and conclude that there must have been some terrible wrong turn taken. I think there's a great limit in how perfect things can be and that we are in effect on the march on the march to, roughly speaking, a better world, a one with longer life expectancies. So, of course, we've had a bit of reversal late, late, lately that I think that we should be extremely concerned about. But getting back to the Supreme Court, I think the Supreme Court has been, by and large, a good force. Do I think that it's perfect? And eh. But, you know, when you name this list of things that happened, what other institutions would have taken the court's place? One reason that the court unwisely rushed into the void in Dred Scott in the way that it did was that Congress hadn't solved the problem. The Compromise of 1850, which had, of course, been billed as a way of settling things, settling things, calming things down, working things out, that seemed to have inflamed things, particularly the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, as you know. And so, so if the Supreme Court had, had stayed out of it, would, would we have avoided a civil war? I frankly am not. I'm not so saying that. Sure. I'm, not, I'm not saying that. And we but don't know. Help. And we do not know. It so is it a reason? Is is it is it a reason to, in effect, defang or get rid of the disempower the Supreme Court today? Um, that you can point to some places where it took a wrong turn. I just don't think so. I don't think that any institution doing any job 
will not have had some pretty significant failures. I mean, you yourself pointed out in your excellent, I thought, review of the court at war, eh, we had a president who muscled the Supreme Court. And frankly, not, ju not just during wartime, it wasn't just Korematsu and Quirin, also the Gold Clause case before, before the right before the war, before the country was at war. There are in, there, there, there is good evidence that FDR was in effect engaging in, in, in pressuring of the court. This is really awful. The president pressuring the court, the court you know, succumbing to this pressure, bad. And yet, does it mean that these are, are non-functional institutions? No. I'm, that's fair. I, 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 I still want to ask the, the question you didn't address. You're starting a country today. It's a big country. It's a lot of diverse people in it. It's not 13 colonies on the East Coast. It's a big land mass. It's a lot of, lot of different territories. People will disagree with each other. Um, and you're creating a separation of powers, federalism type system. And you need a highest court who's also going to do a lot of policy making and lawmaking. Um, you're going to give them life tenure? I'm saying I'm only one person. I'm not the supreme ruler, nor do I aspire to be. We will have to work this out. As you know, many who signed the Constitution had grave doubts about some of its provisions. Many who voted for ratification were unhappy with a lot of it. Many who voted for ratification only did so with the understanding there would be a Bill of Rights and on and on and on. Anyone who wants to be part of building something strong, something new, is going to have to work with others. You're not going to get everything you want. So I can turn the question around to you. If you were at some new constitutional convention for some new nation, and it just so happened that the final document you're being asked to sign contains a provision where Supreme Court justices and, and other federal judges will have life tenure during good behavior, et cetera, would you refuse to sign on those grounds alone? It's a fair, it's a fair See, response. See, I think the answer is no. I no, I'm not sure. No. I, I'm, well, I, I'm not sure because I'm some... Brutus had, me at, Brutus had me at hello. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what I would have done. That's, in that well, I like Brutus too. Okay. I mean, as you might imagine, Brutus no. has, uh, I yeah. think as he has, he, he's energetic. He's real. He knows a lot. I mean, there are great things about Brutus, yeah. but you know, Brutus might well have compromised too. I don't, I, I don't think Brutus was there. Do well, we I, think? let me just say, we... Julie, let me just say, I think your point about compromise is 100, if it could be more than 100% right. It's 150% correct. I, I agree with it. I started this podcast for that reason, to be honest, to have civil <laughs> debates and to get, and you and I, by the way, agreed about 15 minutes ago about something. I forget what it was, but we agreed on something. And yeah, we agreed on a lot. I th yeah, and I thought Including that's really Including now good. that you might sign a constitution that has life tenure for judges, for justices. You I might do it. It would depend what else is in there. No, but, but then, you, I, would, but but then I would change it no. when I learned things. <laughs> you haven't said that you would stomp out of Philadelphia without signing, which is what some did. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an interesting response. All right. Um, so um, what I'd like you to do, if you can, I know this is this is going to be a hard question. You, you've written about common good constitutionalism and feminism. And this is a subject that really interests me. I consider myself a feminist. I have been since I was, as I mentioned, 13. Um, and I've also written about Adrian Vermeule and common good constitutionalism. And this may surprise you, but Adrian actually likes me on Twitter because he and I agree very much on, a, on an amazingly large number of issues to which the left- Not surprising at all. To which the Not left surprising at all. The left came after me with incredible vengeance when I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I said that. I obviously don't agree with him about abortion and gay rights, but his views on administrative law and standing and all that, what I'd like you to do is, if you could, is in a couple of minutes, because again, a lot of the audience is not familiar with this. If you can give a very brief background into common good constitutionalism, kind of how Adrian- 
thinks about it, how you think about it, then talk about feminism, and then I'll respond, if that works for you. Sure. Well, it's not clear what Adrian means by common good constitutionalism. Yeah. It's a great phrase. Yeah. Adrian tells us that his project is recovering and to some, to some limited extent, reinstituting the classical legal tradition, which includes and has, a very, has as a very important component natural law. So natural law is not, as mentioned earlier, the all of the classical legal tradition. All right, that seems well and good. Because government is constituted in order to pursue the race publica, the public good, the public thing. That seems true. Uh, that harkens back to the founding era, where there is an enormous, of course, amount of discussion of that, how we are building a republic, how the most important thing is indeed the common good, the public welfare. So far, Adrian and I agree. Now, where are points of disagreement? To the extent that one can pin down uh, what kind of society Adrian is attempting to build, he sees the common good constitutionalism, constitutionalism that he articulates as consonant with and perhaps even requiring a very strong administrative state with a very strong executive branch. I think that there are tensions between what I understand him to be articulating in his common good constitutionalist mode with his strong endorsement of the administrative state. Yes, I think there's a tension and I think it harkens back to what you were just saying about separation of powers and the influence of Montesquieu and others on the, uh, on the constitution. When it comes to feminism and the constitution, uh, I was responding in an essay, uh, part of an online symposium on common good constitutionalism, to concerns that any adoption of common good constitutionalist principles, however one might want to define them, would necessarily set women back. And I said, not so fast. Some of the ideas, uh, such as the notion that there are uh, certain sorts of rights to make a living, uh, rights to hold property, rights not to have one's property uh, taken by the government, except for, except for good reasons, and so on and so forth. Those could actually help women. You mentioned reproductive rights. Uh, that's an important, con an important topic. Uh, sex differences, of course, are not limited to reproductive rights. And I think that um, as a society, we need to try to work this through. We're in a post-Obs era. And one of the things that uh, in a post-Obs era, I think is now staring us in the face and will have to be worked out through various processes, including constitutional interpretation, is this question of the definition of personhood, uh, you mentioned earlier, you, you characterized yourself as a very strong pro-choicer. And yet, and yet, uh, just about every self-identified strong pro-choicer I have ever talked with does have some limits on the termination of pregnancy. Terminations of pregnancy that involve the death of the fetus, the unborn child, whatever, however you wish to describe at some point, most people say there have got to be limits. Even Judith Jarvis Thompson in her famous essay, Defending Abortion, toward the very end will not go the full measure. She says, yes, if there is someone who is going to terminate a pregnancy toward the end of the pregnancy, a, the pregnancy of a child who is uh, going to live uh, because of some kind of skiing trip or something. I forget her precise example. Well, at that point, she is drawing back. And I think there is, uh, I'm not saying that even if one defines person as uh, occurring very early in pregnancy, even at conception, that that settles abortion controversies. It does not. 
Uh, we still have to answer very tough questions about what sorts of obligations one person can be asked, can be required, can be compelled in various ways to assume for others. But in any event, uh, common good constitutionalism, I think at least as I see the debate right now, doesn't give us very much um, uh, light uh, when it comes to tackling those very important questions. But it is, I think, an interesting development. And it has certainly struck a nerve. And I'm interested mostly in common good constitutionalism because I see that it has struck a nerve. And in particular, I see that it has sparked more interest in the classical legal tradition, um, which I think was already uh, uh, kind of gaining steam. But Adrian's book seems to have uh, accelerated that. I have a question about the classical legal tradition. I don't hold myself out in any way, shape, or form as an expert on it, um, but, I, but I, know, I know something about it. When you, the word classic in and of itself suggests a role for women that is completely unacceptable today. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how... So you're saying we take the good parts of the tradition. All traditions have good and bad parts. I think most, yeah. most traditions have good and bad, not all, but most have good and bad parts. And the fact that women, as late as 1948, I think it was 48, so as late as 1940s, the Supreme Court allowed Michigan to prohibit women from being bartenders. You're talking about property. In certain circumstances, that's right, because there were concerns. Um, well, I love that case. I teach that case, and of course, I teach that was a rent seeking feminism, and, feminism and the free market. I do view that as a rent-seeking case, and we can say that the New Deal settlement, uh, in effect, was a problem because it inhibited the court from... We're going to end this podcast we'll in about three we'll minutes with the New Deal settlement. Before we get there, we'll hold, get on, the hold, hold on, hold on, hold on one second. My point was that that in the 1940s, the Supreme Court of the United States allowed Michigan to say women can't be bartenders unless their husband yeah. or father owns the bar. So, any idea? And that's 1940. It's called 48. I forget the exact year. But it's in the 40s. It's around that. Yeah. So, from a feminist perspective. <laughs> From my, let me rephrase that. From my feminist perspective, the idea of going back to anything classical to work out the appropriate role, relationships, rights, liberties, and limits of female autonomy is absurd. Because until the, to well after the Civil War, wives were property of their husbands in many, many states. No. So, well, no. They were. No. Yeah, they Absolutely were. Absolutely not. They were not property of their husbands. There were fights about the extent to which married women could manage their own property or had their husband manage their property under the uh, concept of coverture with the husband as a fiduciary. Okay. Never forget that husbands were fiduciaries. Now, were those fiduciary duties enforced? Often not. That's a problem with fiduciary duties, but the husbands didn't have, didn't own their wives. You're slicing that awfully thin. Women had no. I am not slicing it thin. I am not remotely slicing it thin. As for the 1940s case you mentioned, that's a departure from the classical legal tradition, or at least many who are many would argue a departure because it is, as you just said, a rent-seeking case. Classical legal tradition, many would argue. There are obviously a lot of different conceptions of this, but many would say part of the classical legal tradition is freedom of uh, occupation, not for women. right? Or at, least, or, or at least a certain level of freedom of not occupation. Not for women. Up to a point for women, but there are lots of restrictions too. Now, the police power of the states the state, uh, at, at the time of the founding was extremely strong, right? Um, so we might say that uh, anything that was permitted under the police power, as the states had it at the time of the founding, is okay today. Or we might, getting back to this issue of levels of generality, 
we might say that eh, things evolve. And so instead of simply looking at particular laws and saying, can we find an exact analog, which is hard to find in laws, you know, um, we will say, well, let's think more about, about principles. Let's think more about general ideas and about what it is that the Constitution um, is meant uh, is 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 meant to 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 accomplish. Okay, well. um, so I mean, there are all kinds of different visions of this. You yourself have pointed out as that very often, uh, kind of those who embrace uh, who who call themselves different labels uh, will reach very similar or even identical results. It's a fairly common thing in constitutional interpretation, right? So uh, you seem um, somewhat determined to, to, to uh, suggest that originalists are, are very concrete thinkers. And my response is- I'm not saying, no, 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 so. I'm not, I've never, my whole book says they're not. I, that's not my book. Okay, excellent. Okay, not concrete thinkers in the sense that, eh, if you know the, the, the old joke about churns, right? And eh, yeah. we can't find anything in the statute about churns. So I right. guess it doesn't cover it. Right. No, that no, is no. not what I am. What I am suggesting. Uh, so, so in terms of of women and and um, uh, whether we would have to go back to some to some past, uh, the answer is is absolutely not. I mean, just for starters, I don't think that, that right now state legislatures would pass the same sorts of laws, right? And there was certainly nothing in the federal constitution that forbade women from being bartenders. No one was interpreting the federal constitution to say that. At any time, the ever. Supreme Court so interpreted can. the federal constitution to prohibit to allow states to prohibit women to allow women. states, and that's complete. But that's completely different from the federal constitution not allowing women to be bartenders. Right after the Fourteenth Amendment was passed, they couldn't be lawyers either in, in Illinois. Okay, but that's again different, and that's because there was a that's because there was in effect a rule. So that's a different thing. So let me, let me so we are we are we are leaving this. We 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 would have. Right, we have state legislatures, federal uh, a federal legislature, and so on that respond, as you keep pointing out, to what the people want today, and rightly so. The people are different from what they were at the founding, and so it is not true that there would be some kind of rewind to 1790. Okay. So, so boy, I, I wish I had you in a room with my with my originalist friends. Um, so. I think what you're doing with the classical legal tradition, and certainly what Adrian is doing with it, because I actually agree with you. I, I agree with Adrian's bottom line about the administrative state. You and I disagree, but I agree with you. I'm not sure that's part of the that's part of the tradition he's relying on. So I think that's a good internal critique. I don't think so. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I agree with you on that. But he disagrees with us. I, I know, but I, I think we agree on this. So that's okay. good. But I think what you're doing and what he does, actually, what what everybody at Law and Liberty, where you some, where you've written at least one piece, um, does is you're picking and choosing, let me finish this thought, you're picking and choosing from the classical legal tradition exactly the same way that originalists pick and choose from the founding and the 1868 period. So for example, Larry Solomon and, and numerous other people um, have said that women can have equal rights today, even though that clearly, under the 14th Amendment, even though that clearly was not the, clearly not the original practice in 1868 by any standard, but that's okay. Because if important enough facts change, if important enough facts change, then we're not bound by their erroneous factual determinations. And they thought women, women were incapable of being lawyers, and they were wrong, and so we can go a different direction. And that's just picking and choosing which part of the, of the original meaning they want to pick from. What I'm trying to say to you is when you, when you start talking about the classical tradition, and then you start talking about feminism, I, I don't... I don't know how, how, how classical legal tradition can be good for feminism when the classical legal tradition treats women as, at best, fifth-class citizens, at best. That's what I don't understand. Well, I, there's where we disagree. 
I mean, the fact is the classical legal tradition uh, leaves a lot of room for positive law. And a lot of positive law in many cultures and many times have restricted women significantly. But that doesn't mean that the classical legal tradition, which makes room for positive law, and room for laws that respond to what the people want as evidenced by what their legislators pass, it doesn't mean that these limitations on women are an essential part of the classical legal tradition. Not in the least. I would say the same thing with the interpretation of the 14th Amendment. The fact that it was interpreted by the Supreme Court with just one dissenter, who didn't write a dissent, of course, he was very sick by that point, uh, Justice Salmon Chase, uh, is interpreted in a certain way doesn't mean that that's what the 14th Amendment necessarily meant then. And it doesn't mean maybe they got it wrong. The Supreme Court, I, I don't understand. All, I don't, the, the maybe, how we talk, gets we, it wrong. So we, I, I am, and it certainly. What does get it wrong so, mean? What does get it wrong mean? Well, we, so the Supreme Court overrules itself. It has now told us that it got it wrong in Roe, that it got it wrong in Casey. To take a less fraught example in the legal tender cases, it told us it got it those wrong. Those are my favorite. Before. I love those cases. I teach them in a course I teach called the Monetary Constitution. And uh, I was hoping during the whole debate over Dobbs that there would be more discussion of the legal tender case. I did. And Hepburn Reef is one. Well, you, yeah, no, no, absolutely. You, I did. But, but um, for the oral, but sadly, I'm not faulting you for this, Eric, but sadly, the oral argument from the Supreme Court didn't go into this issue in depth that I thought that it deserved. So the court says in 1870, yeah, we got it wrong last year. There have been changes in the person. But the court, hold on, hold on. The, the court may have said that, but the court was a it was a different institution. You had two new judges. It was a, there had been there had been a lot of turnover. That's true, but they still said we got it wrong. So so back to the classical legal tradition. I think the classical legal tradition allows a lot of room for positive law, positive law that has been passed by, enacted by, elected or or or, or some kind of uh, you know, legislative bodies that are responsive to the people. And that it doesn't, are, are, does that mean that the, the legislatures can do anything? No, but it, they do, but they can do a lot. So are you And saying, now, so, so it's not being unfaithful to the classical legal tradition to say, yes, I, I, I have a lot of respect for the classical legal tradition and think that today the classical legal tradition would not mean that women are constrained the way they were, say, in 1790. And do you, this is fascinating, I wish we had another hour. Um, are you, are, is there, do you have the same approach to originalism? Meaning, ori let me finish, originalism leaves room for, for everybody, presidents, legislatures, and judges to um, do what's best for today. Is that what? Is, it's not a question of doing, quote, doing what's best for today. That's very vague. I mean, the Constitution, originalists do contemplate a very large role for legislatures, for legislatures that are responsive to the people. Randy Barnett, so does, there's not, no, Randy Barnett, and Larry, Randy Barnett does not see there's that. No, there's, no, there's no originalist I am aware of who is loose in society, who is, or even not loose in society now that I think of it, who, who, who thinks that, that, that legislatures don't have enormous amounts of power, they do. Or that legislatures should not be responding to the electorate, at least taking strong account of electorate. I think a lot of some. libertarians do not feel that. I of electorate's judgments, um, but they're not saying. But there are so many things, right, on which there have are, are all sorts of are also all, all all sorts of actions. You know, na naturally, some will see uh, they're they're being uh, less up for uh, for uh, the political process to determine than others, uh, but all envision a quite strong role, I would argue, for legislatures.
I don't know. I'm going, up all, in a couple, I'm going up in a couple of weeks to debate Ilya Soman. He's a friend of mine. We've debated, I don't know, eight times. Um, I think Ilya does not see a very strong role for legislatures in our country. Um, but, and I, and I, we'll definitely ask him. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that the judiciary doesn't also have have a strong role. Uh, but yeah. um, but the fact is, there are numerous, numerous, numerous uh, regulations that affect property. Getting back to where we started, right. and the vast majority of them are not considered to be unconstitutional. Okay. By so far as I can tell, anyone. Here's my last question. Um, this has been wonderful. Um, I I I. I Sure, I'm older than you by quite a bit. I graduated law school in 1983. Um, circa 1983, when I graduated Vanderbilt, I don't believe there was a single famous, prominent, or even not famous, prominent law professor other than Richard Epstein who thought the New Deal settlement was wrong. I'm trying to think if there are any. Maybe there are others. Richard was certainly the leader of that. But I don't know. Maybe there were five. Okay, maybe there were five. But the o there was an overwhelming consensus that the Lochner era was a mistake, circa 1983. Overwhelming consensus. And that exists. And, and Bork doesn't change that. And, and Raul Berger doesn't change that. None of the original originalists changed that at all. And then we get to 1992. And we have 12 years of Reagan-Bush judges. And the Fellow Society now has 10 years of existence and a whole lot of money. And they have this internal debate between Randy Barnett and a few others on one side and, 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 and the Calabresis and others on the other side, where they're arguing within, among themselves whether the Lochner era was a good thing or bad. Randy wins that. Randy wins. He wins that fight over time. Um, and, and, and today, the Federalist Society thinks, I think, generally, that the Lochner era was good. And I take it so do you. I don't think, I think, I think we're vastly oversimplifying here. Okay. I mean, never forget that during the so-called Lochner era, which let's let's I for purposes of discussion let's let's say 1880 to 1910, there were many 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 regulations of the economy, including uh, challenged, including the law at issue and the New York law at issue in Lochner, and most of them were sustained as constitutional. Bear in mind that only three years after Lochner, the court I think unanimously upheld a restriction on women's work hours in Muller v. Oregon. So there were more upheld than struck down. Lochner itself is a five to four decision. When I arrived at law school in 1984, you and I are only four years apart, that was still the era when law professors said that Lochner was the worst decision of the previous hundred years. Four letter words. It was a four letter word, so I was told. Four letter word. And I thought that was absurd back in 1984. And um, as late as 2003, David Strauss, in a really wonderful article called Why Was Lochner Wrong? said, yeah, that it probably was the worst decision of the previous 100 years. This is 2003. And I think at the time, that was laughable. Are you kidding? Buck v. Bell, yeah. Korematsu, right. worse than Lochner, really? And see, I don't even think I can get you to tell me that Lochner is worse than Korematsu. No, of course not. Buck of course v. not. Bell. See, of course not. And yet, you're totally right that back when we were in law school, there were plenty of law professors who were willing to say that Lochner was the worst thing the Supreme Court did, or certainly the worst decision the Supreme Court handed down since 1900. And today that seems silly. And it's not just conservative justices who are finding in favor of property rights litigants. The Supreme Court just decided a case unanimously, unanimously, Tyler v. Hennepin County, about a tax forfeiture statute. Minnesota's version of this, Minnesota's tax forfeiture statute dated back to the New Deal era. 
And most states didn't have these, these tax forfeiture statutes and someone falls behind on property taxes, the state can take the property, sell it and keep all the proceeds, not just what the property owner who's in arrears on right. property taxes owes the states all the money. And most states didn't have that, but about a quarter did and the District of Columbia did. And what is more, when we look at US history, and eh, we see a lot of statutes that kind of like this. This was a fascinating discussion because we had lots and lots of history in both in, 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 in both of the merits in, in the merits briefs and also in a lot of the amicus briefs. Yeah. And now we have a unanimous decision that this is a taking. The takings clause has been revitalized step by step, and it's being revitalized in a way that it's not simply conservative identified property rights friendly justices who are finding in favor of property owners. We are also seeing supermajority and as I mentioned, majority opinions. These have things have changed a lot since we were in law school. And you can call that because, well, originalism came and, uh, the, and, and the version of originalism that original that eventually came to dominate, uh, let's call it roughly speaking, uh, more Randy Barnett's vision than Robert Bork's vision yep. of originalism, at least with respect to property rights, yep. uh, that kind of went out. And then, but you know what? It's interesting because the originalists have now been joined by living constitutionalists who I think upon reflection have seen that property rights actually are important and that having some poor person who goes into a retirement community or has to leave her home, lose all the value of the property, ooh, there has to be some constitutional limitations on what legislatures can do when it comes to property rights. Just, just so I'm clear and to make sure the audience is clear, my understanding, but I'm ready to be corrected, is the Lochner era, what we call the Lochner era. And I concede your point that very few laws were struck down as opposed to laws there were that some. were upheld. There were some, but no, a lot were upheld. But, but, there, were still a lot, but there were still a lot of, I mean, you, you mentioned the women's case, but then 10 years after that or something, they struck down a minimum wage law for women. So it went back yes, and forth. That, that's not my point. My point is those weren't takings cases. Those were police power cases. They are police power cases, yeah. and they strike down. Adkins uh, talks about how the world has changed, how right. women are now in a different position. And Locker, remember, is five to four. And I mean, it's kind of on the line. Is this, does this go too far? Does this not go too far? There's really only one justice, Justice Holmes and his dissent, who advocates the kind of very, 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 very strong deference to the legislature that I hear you advocating. Uh, no, Harlan, no, Holmes, no, Harlan did too. Go back and read it. Harlan's no, 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 no. Harlan, no, not at he all. He said the Harlan same thing. I don't think so. We read these dissents quite differently. Yes, we do. And um, Harlan, Harlan actually is 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 pointing out Harlan does disagree. Um, he 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 would uphold the statute, but he does go into a lot of detail. This is not an Har Harlan's dissent and Lochner is not a well. We owe a lot of deference to the legislature. They've made this determination. He looks at factors quite carefully. I mean, call, obviously the tiers of scrutiny were not in existence in 1905, but Harlan's opinion is a very substantive opinion. He says, I agree with you that he uses facts to support his decision, as opposed to Holmes, who basically said, I don't care what the facts are, it's not our job. But right. when Harlan talks about the standard of review, it's the exact same language as Holmes. Only if no reasonable person can find this to be illegal should we strike it down. That's what he says. It's the same standard. It's the same legal yeah. standard. He just but we also have... But in Harlan, but I'd also say getting back to looking at actions and not just words. And so yeah. on Harlan's called the great dissenter for a reason. Yeah. He wrote a lot of dissents where he wasn't actually going to say that if any reasonable person can think this. 
Yeah. I look upon I look upon his descendant Plessy right. B. Ferguson right. and so you, forth. Is, you, you, is hit you, you hit a raw nerve with me. Okay, nerve. but that's... You, no, let me tell you I, why. I, I, because Akil and Randy had this big debate at the Federal Society a few years ago, and they both agreed on this, and I sent them the language. If you go back and read yeah. Harlan's legal language, it's the same as Holmes. The only difference is Harlan appends facts to his legal language, which may be yeah, very and important. The, go back and look. So I see what you're... I see what you're saying, and and so on. Um, I would say that opinion. I mean, he, he he is a little all over the place. Yeah. I mean, he I, I I do look at what he's doing, and what he does seem to be doing is looking very carefully at what that's fair at what the legislature is actually up to. That's fair. And so on. So uh, that's fair. No, that's fair. That's totally fair. I'm just not sure. When you said standard of review, I think your standard of review was the same. Yeah. It's, it's just he he believed more in facts than Holmes did, probably. Is all. But then he is doing something, right? Fair. The standard of review fair. is so fair. Uh, fair. So so more so Lochner era has come down as this time it gets demonized as this time when when courts were running wild and substituting their judgment for legislature legislatures. And that's not what it I think was. I think it's really and I, I think the New Deal settlement. Uh, with respect to property rights, where uh, legislatures, um, or so the theory went, would have an extremely light hand, would adopt uh, the Oliver Wendell Holmes and Lochner approach of, in effect, uh, stepping back and not overseeing, uh, not, not doing much, if any. Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe if there was some evidence that there had been some kind of uh, blatant corruption, right? Courts might have a role, but the court's a little cagey about that in Sperman v. Parker, the eminent domain case from 1954. Yeah. But it ultimately, Justice the court unanimously for Justice Douglas ultimately says, eh, we really don't have much of a role here. Our role, if any, is really, really small. Can we? And uh, that, I, I, I think that's really unfortunate. It's unfortunate not just for property rights. I think it's unfortunate for their entire jurisprudence because I think the court, in essence, threw the baby out with the bathwater They because they had so demonized, so rejected these early, late 19th, early 20th century presidents, they couldn't make effective use of them when they needed to explain why the judiciary, whatever statements were made during the New Deal era, why the judiciary was coming back into the picture as defender of constitutional rights up to a point against legislative majorities, which is of course what they begin, what they what they are doing. We're, at it, we're, we're well past an hour, but I, I'm going I'm, I'm, to, okay. I'm, I'm gonna ask for my audience's indulgence for a minute. Can we, and they, they can always turn it off. Um, can we do a lightning round? I've never, I, I, I've done 101 podcasts. I've never asked a guest this before. Can we do a lightning round? Because I'm, I'm very yes. curious where you are on some things. I don't want just yes, really kind of yes, no's, maybe. Um, so um, do you think Lawrence versus Texas was correctly decided? Uh, yes. Okay. I think Bowers was wrong the day it was decided. Okay. Um, do you think not Citizens United, which was clearly correctly decided because it was a prior restraint on political speech, but the but the cases after Citizens United, <sighs> writing well, a check. I mean, these are these are not susceptible to. I mean, you have to. Citizens United had the choice of of which line of First Amendment precedents, right? They were going to follow. It was the court was going to follow, and they chose one. So no, I, I disagree. See, right? I disagree completely with that. It was, it was a prior restraint on political speech. It had yeah. to be struck down. So, so, um, but, um, and I think nothing so, gets so struck this, down, by the way, there's like five so examples. I don't, and, and I tend to think that the cases just as a general matter, the cases that the court decides tend to be hard ones where you, where one can, one can generally Not make that good, good arguments on, on both sides. And, um, I always try to explain to students in particular, you know, this isn't about me and what I would do also in, in saying that a case is correctly decided or not. I mean, I do 
hesitate often because I often have not read the briefs, have not heard the arguments and so on. There are some cases that I know extremely well that I am willing to, okay. to make arguments to you about, but most of them, frankly, um, I, I don't think a lot of justices are, are uh, or nominated justices are lying when they say that uh -huh, they, they, they don't know for sure how they're going to come down on various issues. They don't, so much depends. So much depends on, 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 on how the case comes up. I wish they would say in, Eric Berger was on this podcast a few months ago. Eric's written a lot of good things about certainty. Um, and and, and um, I've had another guest who talked about that. I wish the court would write the opinions in the language you just used. We're not sure. It's hard. This is our best view of it. They don't write that way. They write, this is the only answer, well, and, and, and we're done. And often, so, often. That's a nonpartisan critique. That's a, that's just, that, you know. Yes. I, I have the same critique. Sometimes it sounds like some high school debate society. Yes. I don't All think right. it's a good look. But, All right. I'll know. call off the lightning round, and I'll just say thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think we, if we had six hours, we would probably agree on more than we disagree. I think, but the New I Deal settlement—the right. New Deal settlement—is not one of those things. We would always disagree well. about that. Um, I, I, but um, I hope people who are listening to this—I think you're really thoughtful, and I think your work is very thoughtful. I want people to read your work. Um, they can find you at UVA and on the website. And all your articles are linked. A lot of your articles are linked there. Um, and um, I think if I'm reading you correctly, your form of originalism is probably one I could live with because um, I think you leave very much open on the surface the idea that we're really doing all of this in the service of today. It's, it's a tool to get to the best answer today. And the classical legal tradition is a very good tool to use, you say. And maybe the original documents or, and the original meaning is a good tool to use, but it's a tool to get us to the best answer today. Is that fair? I would say I would say the best answer for building a future. Perfect. Because Even I better. think that so much is about so much of the constitutional laws about the future as well as the past. Future constitutionalism. So That's the name of the article. Future constitutionalism. Future constitutionalism. We agree. So thank, thank you, you Julia, so much. Really liked it. Thanks, Thanks. again. Bye bye.